Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network and through your various podcasting services. And should I maybe say that this week we are Lost in Science Week? Because it is Science Week. It is. Happy Science Week, everyone. It's the best week of the year. Well, the most sciencey week of the year anyway. Depending who you are. Some people probably have more sciencey weeks, but they probably are <laughs> full-time scientists. So yes. for everyone else, uh, yeah. here we are in Science Week. It's time to celebrate some science. Yeah. I mean, we, we do do that most weeks, but um, really everyone else celebrates some science. Yeah, the nation. We get the nation to celebrate science. That's right. And you are, speaking of the nation, who is made up of humans. <laughs> yes. Who were you talking to this week? Well, I was talking to a human. A, a, a human? Dr. Chris Gingell from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. He's a bioethicist and um, he's actually going to be presenting at a National Science Week event called Humans 2.0, which looks at, takes researchers from all over and asks them to speculate on what the future of research and the future of humans is going to look like. Like so, evolution-wise? Evolution-wise, the future of antibiotics and medicines, of drugs um, and the chemical, like chemical um, enhancements. Um, the singularity, augmented realities, and you know where we're going to be with AI and the singularity. Yeah, um, all those sorts of crazy things. The future of gardening as well. The future of gardening. Yes, it'll be robots, right? <laughs> robots it's all going to be robots. Well, you'll just have to come and have a have a listen. Um, so Chris is going to be talking a little bit about his research because he um, looks at some really interesting um, ethics around bioediting, especially when you're looking at things like CRISPR and and you know the ethics of changing uh, embryos genetics and their germline into future generations. Um, but then we're also going to be talking about humans 2.0. That is really interesting, though, because of the thought of uh, that you're not just responsible for the individuals that you create through gene editing, but you're responsible for all of the subsequent generations as yeah, well. Yeah, indefinitely. Amazing. It is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. It's big, big ideas. Which, which is, you know, during National Science Week, you want to be talking about big ideas. We do. We do want to be talking about big ideas. And speaking of big ideas, what's your big idea, Chris? Well, <laughs> I mean, you, you, can, you, can, you can go and listen to people, obviously scientists, talk about their work and their research. Or you can do some research yourself. That's a great idea. That is a great big idea. Yes, because every year in Science Week there is a Citizen Science Project. And this year it's one where you can take part in helping research coral and other things on the Great Barrier Reef. I can't guarantee that the government will give you $400 million for doing this research. <laughs> um, however, look, it's, it's, still, it's still worth doing anyway. This is the thing about uh, Science Week is that it is about getting everyone involved in science and there's citizen science projects all over the place and there's Science Week events all over the place. All around the country. All around the country. Um, you know, if you go to the Science Week website which is scienceweek.net.au but basically if you google or, or use your you know your favorite search engine uh to, <laughs> you to, can bing it if you want yeah yeah <laughs> you can ask jeeves uh yeah however how, how you find it? if you put if you put uh science week australia into a search engine you will end up on the scienceweek.net.au page and if you put in or if you go to the um find events section of their mm -hmm. website you can put in your postcode and it will pop up all of the events around you. One that I saw which sounded amazing, but it's a little bit out of my reach 
um, this week uh, is there's an event in Broome where they're basically teaching people how to take DNA samples from soil so they can send them in to university science labs and they can uh, figure out what microbes are in soil all around Western Australia. Oh, oh that's wow. pretty cool. Yeah. That is really cool. That's like, very cool. You go and learn, and they say, "Here's how you take a soil sample, and here's how you, you know, preserve it and make sure it all stays alive, and then send it in." And they can figure out, they can, you know, map all of the microbes in Western Australia. How cool is? That? Oh my goodness! Amazing. Wow. I want to go to Broome for Science Week. Now. Yeah. Oh, well, next year I think I'll, next just, I'll year. try for next year. Yeah. Do a do a a, uh, a report from there. But there's also, you know, I mean, there's there's science institutions all over Australia. There's um, there's uh, observatories all over Australia. And one of them in uh, Ballarat is asking for, uh, you know, mostly for students, I guess, to uh, figure out what would be their top priorities if they were crash landed on Mars. So if they were forced to survive on Mars, what would they have to do? And it's actually a competition. So you bring in your entry of how you would, you know, how you would cope and you can sort of put it in. But they have a massive telescope where you can look through and have a look at Mars. So you could So you can get some uh, inspiration. Yeah. Martian inspiration plan ahead. while you were planning. Isn't Ballarat where they make Mars bars, the chocolate bars as well? Is this like some sort of tie in? <laughs> it maybe it is. Maybe the prize is just boxes of Mars bars. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe. Maybe that's what you get to look at. Hopefully they're also doing some. Uh, they're actually looking at the pla- the red planet. Yeah, yeah, as well. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there are some other. I mean, Science Week is so great because there are so many grassroots events that are happening in libraries and communities and schools all across Australia. Um, but it's also a chance for people to get on the road and do um, and tour around Australia with some of their great ideas. And um, one thing that's happening is the great debate, which is um, the greatest discovery ever made. So in Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney um, to celebrate National Science Week, they are going to have um, events happening all over Australia looking at the question, what is the greatest discovery ever made? So there could be a different discovery in Adelaide and in Melbourne and Brisbane and Sydney? Yeah, well, um, so they've got eight um, scientists and uh, comedians and, um, you know, different people who enjoy science to talk about their greatest discovery. So they will definitely be different greatest discoveries being debated at every different event in every so you city. Could follow them, but you could follow them around if you wanted to get all the, the full set and find out all the discoveries. You could yeah. like do a tour, like yeah, a Grateful Dead style. Yeah, you could be a science, a science debate groupie. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. I, think, I think that would suit you, Chris. Yeah, I think it would. I think it would. <laughs> <laughs> And look, it's not it's not all serious science too. Um, in if you're in Tasmania, Lawrence Leung is running around the whole country. Uh, he's going to be in Franklin and Hobart and Launceston doing shows where he stands up for science, and he's got special wow. guests at every show, um, talking about you know cool science things and obviously making jokes about them as well. I assume. You know what? You could else is a really good fun science week event too. What, what's that, Chris? Um, if you're in Melbourne, you can get along to the Lost in Science Trivia Night, which is the annual, like, biggest highlight of Science Week, I just want to say. Uh, it's um, this, this year, it will be on Monday, the 13th of August. That's right. That is right, at the, the Birmingham Hotel in Collingwood, Smith Street, Collingwood. Yeah, and um, I mean, we will all be there. That's and, right. That's right. Yeah, and, and we'll be delivering some science questions, and I'll also be throwing out some questions on Twitter. So please follow us at 
um, Lost in Sci 1. At Lost in Science 1. At Lost in Science 1 um, to follow, follow along on Twitter. Excellent. All right. So uh, I think we better get on to talking about Humans 2.0. gene editing technology CRISPR and how it promises to be the silver bullet to fix genetic diseases by targeting mutations not only in plants and animals but in humans as well. But like every new technology there is a debate around the ethics of gene editing and what the future holds for this technology. Now to lead us through the debate our guest today is Dr Chris Gingell, Research Fellow in Biomedical Ethics at Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the University of Melbourne. Chris, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you, Claire. Now, Chris, you've got a pretty great job title, uh, Research Fellow in Biomedical Ethics. Can you talk us through what that means? Yeah, so essentially I do a lot of academic research on the ethical implications of biotechnologies. So a lot of that is now, as you just discussed, the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system. Um, but I also do the ethical issues of other assisted reproduction technologies and, yeah, other things that come up. You never know quite what's going to come up in science and it's interesting to be able to look at the ethical issues as they arise. Now, a special research interest of yours is CRISPR, yep. um, which a lot of people might know. In my understanding of CRISPR, it's sort of, uh, or, you know, any sort of human germline gene editing, you're sort of taking a sperm or an egg or an embryo and changing the DNA so that all future offspring carry that change. That's yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. But CRISPR's sort of new technology. Yeah. So look, so scientists have been able to um, modify the genetic makeup of species for decades now. So I remember when I was growing up, I'd see on the news glow-in-the-dark mice and things. Yeah, um, of course. And those was transgenic mice. Um, so I've been able to do that for a while. But those early techniques were really difficult and hard to use. They would use viruses to go in and modify the DNA sequences. Right. And they were very imprecise. You'd make lots of different changes to the organism. And so essentially you had to use lots of animals to get the change that you want. Um, so it was a matter of doing sort of like a shotgun approach and then finding the one edit that you wanted and then going down that line. Exactly. And often actually what you want to do, you do the shotgun approach, you find the one that you want and then you breed them together kind of oh. thing. So then you've got this little population with the edit. Not very exact. Not very exact and obviously limited application in humans. Um, so what happened about six years ago is a lab in Berkeley run by um, Jennifer Doudner and Emmanuel Champontier. Um discovered this molecule called the CRISPR-Cas9 molecule. Um, basically, this is two, two components. It's the CRISPR component, which is like a little guide molecule of RNA, which can attach to a specific DNA sequence, and a Cas9 molecule, which is like a pair of molecular scissors. So once the CRISPR molecule binds to a specific sequence, the Cas9 molecule cuts it. And they discovered that they could manipulate this molecule in the lab so it could target any DNA sequence that they want. 
And then they found that once you've cut the DNA sequence there, you can recruit the cell's own DNA repair mechanisms to add or delete or to alter the genetic sequence there. Right. So this is no longer you need a specific part of the DNA to make, to insert something. This can be used anywhere on the DNA. Yeah, essentially, virtually anywhere on the DNA, and you can target it yourself in your lab. So you can say, I want to target this area of DNA, and you make your little guide RNA, and you put it into the cell, and away you go. Away you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So in terms of where we are with research on human embryos or human germlines and modifying those... Where is the science currently up to? Yeah, so there's been a few studies. So in um, 2015, a lab lab based in China became the first lab to use this technology on human embryos. That was a while ago. It was a while ago, and it was very controversial at the time. So at that time, um, there was a lot of pushback in the scientific community. Both two leading scientific journals, Nature and Science, ran um, opinion pieces, which basically called for this research to be stopped. They thought it was unethical to be pursuing this line of research. That's a pretty hardline stance for them to take. It was, and I thought it was um, a very reactionary stance at that time. Often these studies were done entirely in petri dishes, you know, in embryos that were never going to be implanted into a woman. Um, So it was just basic research. So it's really, I thought it was difficult to sort of say that they were clearly unethical. Um, And since then, we've seen a really sort of softening of the approach to genome editing. And more and more studies have been conducted in the UK and in America as well, in the USA. Um, And we've slowly started to see more sort of um, scientific groups and leading scientific bodies Um, sort of endorse this technology for research purposes now. And what would be some of the sort of like great outcomes that these research bodies are pursuing with this technology in terms of disease eradication? Yeah, so the most basic thing that they use in it, that they can use it for research now, is actually to study human development. So we understand very little about how humans go from this single cell um, to this complex multicellular organism. Um, So we don't know what type of mechanisms are involved there. Um, And this is important because humans have a very high rate of spontaneous abortion. So only about a third of fertilized eggs survive the first trimester of pregnancy. And we don't really understand why that is. And also IVF success rates are traditionally quite low. Um, And that may be because we don't really understand what's going on at those very early stages of development. So what they can do with this technology is alter particular genes in an embryo and then watch it grow, and then that gives them a clue about, oh, well, that mechanism, that gene's doing something really important in that early stage. That sort of research is looking at the embryos, and then that would not go on to then become That's it. right. So all this research is done. There's generally a worldwide consensus that when you do research on embryos, it can only be done to 14 days. Okay. So nothing above 14 days is considered um, ethical or legal in most jurisdictions, yeah. So we talk about the very early stages of development. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, and where? what's the current sort of philosophical debate about um, these sorts of technologies in Australia specifically? Are we, are we behind the rest of the world? Are we yeah, so somewhere in the middle? In Australia, you, it's very unlikely that you can do that research. A lot of people interpret the law as saying that those type of studies are illegal in Australia, and it's certainly not been done in Australia. Um, So there's a lot of debate now whether we need to change those laws to allow that type of research. 
my own personal view is that we should. I think there's, it's really hard to see how that research can be harmful, uh, particularly in jurisdictions like Australia where you've got you know good oversight, good regulations, um, and it's generally you know considered worldwide a good place to conduct um, scientific research. In your opinion, what does the future of gene editing on embryos look like? Yeah, so I've talked about what you can do in research terms, um, but obviously people are much more concerned about not just doing it for research, but for using it for reproduction. So initially you could do that to treat genetic diseases. So a lot of genetic diseases are caused by, caused by one defective gene or uh, one mutation, such as Tay-Sachs syndrome or cystic fibrosis. With Gene editing, you could potentially find those genes in an embryo and correct them. Um, so it would be a one-hit cure kind of scenario. Um, and that sounds really good. And I think, obviously, we like to prevent disease. It's generally seen as an ethically good thing to do. But you get into more tricky things about, well, where, how far do we go? What if we want to change the eye color of a child or their height or their intelligence? Um, or their sexual orientation. So you get into these really sort of tricky areas quite quickly. When it stops being life-threatening, it, it then just turns into something that the parents have a choice about. That's, um, that's extremely tricky. It is, yeah. So there's a few tricky things. So one is like who should decide. So who should make those decisions about what type of genes and traits a child should have? Um, some groups of philosophers think it should be up to the parents. They endorse a principle of sort of reproductive freedom, saying that, well, I should be go free to go and live my life how I want, and the government or law should only stop me doing what I want when I'm at risk of harming someone. So if I'm doing something to an embryo that's not going to harm it, say we don't think changing an eye colour is necessarily a harmful thing to do to them, then I should be free to do that and I should have the right to do that. Um, against that, you have people saying we've got to think more than just the individual here and think about the collective interest in these technologies and the risk to changing the sort of child-parent relationship Will children start to be seen as um, sort of objects that we're using rather than sort of an ends in themselves. People also worry about the sort of social consequences of maybe only some people will be able to afford these technologies, generally the rich, and maybe they'll use it to give themselves even further biological advantages and so or worsen inequalities. Certainly, and, and the agency of the unborn child of, you know, they then grow up to realise that they, you know, they've been designed in a certain way by their parents. Yeah, that's right. So another another group of concerns is about, in general, um, for medical technologies like this, informed consent is a really sort of strong medical principle. You obviously can't get consent from an embryo, so therefore perhaps we shouldn't do it. Personally, I don't think those are the strongest argument because there's a lot of things we do to infants which we can't get the consent for, and we don't get consent to do open-heart surgery on a you know two-week-old baby, but we do it because it might be in their best interest. But of course... That comes back to what you said before about the distinction between something life-saving and something that's just done um, as a preference. Where are these debates currently happening? Are they happening in a rigorous way? Are we um, examining this as much as we should be? Are we educated enough? Yeah, so look, Australia's a little bit behind. There's a lot of rigorous debate going on in the United Kingdom at the moment. So an influential independent body called the Nuffield Council of Bioethics um, two weeks ago released their report on 
genome editing and human reproduction. Um, I actually provided input into that report. I was sort of interviewed there while I was in the UK. And that's a very rigorous report. And they, I think they've got quite a good approach, which is they're not actually ruling anything in or out at this stage. Rather, they're sort of trying to um, get the underlying ethical principles which guide the development of the technology. And what they sort of came up with is we need to consider the well-being of any children that are produced. We need to consider the um, effects on society and make sure we don't marginalise any social groups. And we also need to consider the effects of further generations far, far, far into the future. Well, that sounds like a very good starting point. Mm, yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chris, you're actually going to be presenting your ideas at a National Science Week event, Humans 2.0. Uh, it's in Melbourne on Wednesday, August 15. What can people expect from it's that? It's going to be a really, really exciting event. Um, so I'm obviously going to be talking about genetic engineering and how that might affect future generations or how if we don't do any genetic gen engineering, how that might affect very future generations as well. Um, but uh, you have seemingly a lot of exciting things to do. There's a lot of people doing immersive experiences and virtual reality and robotics. And yeah, I think it's going to be really fun. So the event is all about the future of the human race. So we're not talking about necessarily, I mean, you know, some of it is grounded in research that's taking place now, but we're projecting ourselves into the future. That's right. So it's really exercising our imagination of what will the human species look like in the very far future. Um, and, you know, I think what's really interesting is you've got all these different perspectives and you're going to have some quite different pictures, I think, presented <laughs> on that night. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to be going along and I can't wait to hear your presentation. Um, Chris, thank you so much for coming into Lost in Science today. And if you are in Melbourne, make sure you head to Humans 2.0 on Wednesday, August 15. And you can find details at uh, scienceweek.net.au. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science in Science Week, and as I said in the introduction, the government may be handing out funding to Great Barrier Reef projects of dubious value. I've got um, I've got a Great Barrier Reef project. Can they give me some money? I just want to like go on one of those glass bottom boats and look at all of the Great Barrier Reef. Will they give me money for that? I'll, I'll write something down as I was there. I'll, I'll record some data. Well, that is strikingly similar to the um, the project that I'm talking going to talk about, Stu, which oh, is one where you can actually take part in a project um, for for part of Science Week to actually help the Great Barrier Reef. You probably won't get millions of dollars for it, though, oh. unfortunately. Um, yeah. Not but, even, will, but, I, will I get a glass bottom boat? That's the most important part of my project. Well, not... not <laughs> You will get the satisfaction that you are, you know... Contributing to science. Contributing to science and well, the further that's, development That's more of than enough, our, really, isn't it? The scientific knowledge base. Yeah, that's right. You can get a glass bottom on your car or something you can drive around looking at the road. Anyway, no, so this, this, this project is called Virtual Reef. It is the, the citizen science project for National Science Week for 2018. Every flagship. Flagship. Yep. 
Every year they have one. It's um, usually promoted by the ABC. We don't hold any grudges, though. You know, we're we're fine with the ABC. <laughs> we're all we're all together we're all in, in the together. non-commercial. That's correct. That's correct. Space. There are there are colleagues. Um, last year was a smartphone survey. Um, the I don't know, it was called the, the Smartphone Survey. This um, sounds much more interesting. Well, yeah. m- many of the projects are similar to this kind of one, which is basically kind of where you need, you have a whole lot of data that you need an army of humans to process. So in 2016, they had Wildlife Spotter, which used like yep. um, photos from trail cams. You basically had to say, there's a wombat. Um, and so what, you just sit there and watch footage and wait? And like they photos, they'll be photos. They'll oh, be like, okay. show you photos and you go, is there an animal in this photo? What is it? Okay. Kind of thing. In 20. There was a sleep one as well, was there? That was, yeah, that was quite a few years ago. Yeah, yeah right. I, that wasn't this same kind of thing. You didn't like, look at people sleeping and go, yep, sleep, yep, awake. <laughs> but like they had one in 2015 that was that was called Galaxy Explorer, probably self-explanatory. Oh, yes. Yeah, you're looking at yes. pictures of galaxies. Okay. Um, 2014 was one called Weather Detective, which is basically looking at records, climate records in old captain's logbooks, are. Uh, 2013, there was one actually called Explore the Seafloor, which is about specifically about mapping kelp and sea urchin populations. But, uh, you know, you may not be into kelp and sea urchin. I don't know. I don't know your taste. But this one is actually about, this year is about the Great Barrier Reef. And so it's looking at things like the extent of coral cover over the reef. Um, so, like, we, we know that the reef is under threat, obviously, mostly from climate change as well as, you know, other factors that are going on. But, you know, what is the damage? What is the extent of the damage? What is it likely to be? How can we model that? We need data to be able to make these predictions to understand what's going on. And you can send teams out to do surveys, like Stu. You can pay for his Stu to go out in his glass-bottom boat. But... <laughs> It takes a lot of money, a lot of stews to get a good coverage of the reef. So the idea here is basically you just have lots and lots of photos of, of the reef and then you get people to sift through them. So it's the kind of thing that's harder to solve with money. You just need people to, to tackle that. Sick, so because yeah, there's a limit to what money can buy. You need human brain power. We don't have coral spotting AIs yet that are good enough to figure it out. Is that, is that the point? Unfortunately not. Um, which... we, have, we have that crown of thorns <laughs> spotting AI um, which machine learned how to spot a crown of thorns and then has a deadly um, injection that when it finds a crown of thorns, it injects it. Is it a robot that goes out on the reef? Yes, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you remember didn't they, that? Didn't they call it the Terminator robot or it's, something? It's like, it's an incredible robot. I did a story a couple of oh. y- years about it. Of course I remember it then. <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe you don't remember my stories, Chris. <sighs> anyway, this one. This one has got... Um, I'll tell you how it works. So it's being run by statistical scientists from the Queensland University of Technology. Um, the database, and I had a look at it, uh, was over 68,000 photos. Sounds like a lot, but it's, we'll get on to that. And what you do is you log on, you create an account, and then you tell the computer what you see in the photo. So it puts up a, a little photo of the reef, and it puts 15 small circles randomly placed over the photo, and you have to say what's in each of those circles. So you're not looking at describing the whole thing. It doesn't like put you just a picture of the reef, and you go, and you write a little text thing going, "I see, I see vistas of coral and waving sea fronds, or whatever those sort of things." You goes, "Okay, here's sure, a circle. Quantified. What's yeah? It's the, it's the idea. It's to get quantified data. You're basically getting a an image, a, quali- a qualitative image, and you're basically going, we're trying to quantify this. So yeah, so do things like the extent of coral cover. You're actually counting the amount of coral effectively. So yeah, it has these 15 circles, and you say what's in those. So you've got like hard coral, soft coral, sand, water." Algae, um, fish, fish. There's an other option. Sea yeah. turtle. Yeah, 
That'd be that'd be a good photo, wouldn't so, it? So, and the same photo is going to be shown to to multiple people because they'll put the circles in different spots. But the idea sure, is you also you then you get well, you also get processing. Like the computer has to then like make sense of it all. Because I got to say, I logged on and I, you know, it was mostly coral from what I could tell. But I'm not an expert, and you know, I'm I'm doing what more what I think it is, and someone else may may differ. Like, there is training stuff, training videos you can watch. It'll give you some idea, but. You know, like hard coral, soft coral, you can't touch it. Um, that's what I'm saying. So do they do they do they cross check these results or do they so are they are they matching sort of similar like twenty people see the same photo and they figure out whatever I I, person I actually I don't know how the algorithm works, but they are they are doing that. They're um they are essentially yeah, they're combining all this information to get uh yeah, to, to get an estimate of what's there. And the main thing they're looking at is coral cover. So mm-hmm. really that's the thing they're focusing on is you're telling what's coral and what's not coral. So I looked at a few pictures and some had basically a whole lot of coral with maybe some little anemones and things there. And other ones was mostly sand. And yeah, it's pretty easy to spot the bits that weren't sand. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty straightforward. So um, do we know what's going to happen to this information um, once we've all given our time? Um, are they, are they going to come back to us? With the research paper, with all our names on it, with the results. Well, presumably so. It's, it is about um, primarily about modelling the what's going to happen to the reef in the future, and so they have got a bit of information on the website showing how that the, the more data you have, the more accurate your models can be, and how you can fill in the gaps. Because you know they have, like I said, surveys that they've done, and there's lots of gaps between those. So this is trying to fill in those gaps, but it really is about yeah trying to predict what will happen mm. under climatic conditions, but also under say if there's a cyclone comes through, what will the effect of that cyclone be? So. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. They or haven't said bleaching event. Yeah, they haven't said specifically what the um what the papers they'll produce. I imagine there will there usually are papers published for these things, and they don't credit every person. Unfortunately, so you don't get like a, a paper in your name. Uh, although the um the didn't the recent um stargazing live they discovered. I think they discovered some um some planets um that were. That were orbiting a distant star. Uh, they discovered a new uh, solar system. And then the person and the citizen scientist who discovered it was credited in in the paper, along with um, Julie Zamiro. Along with Julie Zamiro. That's who right. Was hosting the show. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, they're going to predict this. They're trying to basically remove the gaps within their data. Now, sixty-eight thousand photos. I said that sounds like a lot of photos, but the Great Barrier Reef. Um, covers 350,000 square kilometres. And these photos are actually quite zoomed in. So they do need a lot more photos. So people are actually invited to upload their own photos and add to the database so they can get um, more coverage of this of this, um, of the reef and try to fill in the gaps. So yeah, it's the more the more data you get in, the more, like I said, the more accurate the model, the better the prediction. So look, it's a very easy project. You're basically just, you're looking at pictures of the reef, um, and you get to contribute to science and to the future of the reef. Uh, what more could you ask for? Uh, $400 million, obviously. But apart from that, you know, the feeling of a job well done. Um, if you want to find out more, you can go to virtualreef.org.au to find out more about the project and to, to register and take part. We've run out of time to get lost in Science Week this week on but the show. the week goes on. It does. And wherever you are in Australia, there is some science 
happening around you that you can even join in on, you should get onto the Science Week webpage and have a look at what is happening in your neighbourhood, wherever is, you may happen to be. That is scienceweek.net.au? Yeah, that is correct. But if you are in the Melbourne region, then please come down to the Lost in Science trivia um, for National Science Week and also as a fundraiser for 3CR. And um, We would love to see you down there at Will... Um, kick off around 7.30 but come down to 6.30 um, for hangouts and maybe um, a bite to eat. And meet the stars of Lost in Science. That's us. <laughs> oh, that's us. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. We better make sure we're there, there too. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is the 13th of August from 6.30. And you can um, check out all the details on our Facebook page. You can find us at Lost in Science and 3CR on Facebook. It's $15 for 3CR subscribers and $20 for people who are not yet subscribed. Why wouldn't you? So, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can, as we mentioned, reach us on Facebook to give us your commiserations for not making it to trivia, or you can email us, uh, or you can just tune in once again next week when the Lost in Science team all get together and get (laughs) Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.